0: To the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannik, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And you can reach me with your thoughts and questions. I'd love to hear from you. My email is hope at upc-online.org. So today on the podcast, I have a very special guest, Andy Tabar. Andy is the co-host of one of my favorite vegan podcasts, The Bearded Vegans, with his co-host, Paul, and The Bearded Vegans podcast is in its fifth year of releasing weekly episodes dedicated to discussing the ethical gray areas of living a vegan life. Andy is also the owner of a vegan business, Compassion Co., an organic US-made vegan clothing line with awesome and fun vegan t-shirts and hoodies and other items. And Andy had so much great information to share that we're just gonna jump right into the interview. But before we do that, I just, I wanted to thank Andy. And I didn't get to do this in the interview, I meant to. But he was so kind to me when I was starting this podcast about a year ago. He was one of the only people that I knew who had a podcast, and he was so encouraging. He didn't make me feel like I was gonna be competition. He was just very, very supportive and helped me with technical questions in the beginning. And I just so appreciated that hand-holding and back-padding at the time because it was very intimidating starting a podcast. So I appreciated his support. He is just such an awesome guy, and I'm really glad he agreed to be on the podcast today. He has so much amazing information to share. So we're just going to jump right into the interview. Okay, so I want to bring in our guest today. Today we have Andy Tabar, and I'm so happy he is joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Andy.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Hope.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start with your story. To me, all vegan activists are superheroes, and all <laughs> superheroes have origin stories. And you're, well, you're just really pulling double duty and triple duty with how active you are. You've got your podcast and speaking and your outreach. And on top of that, you have a vegan business, the Compassion Co. Clothing line. So you are certainly a superhero to me. And I would love to hear your origin story of when and why you went vegan and maybe got into activism, whatever you'd like to share.
1: Sure. Well, I, I wish I had a really exciting origin story. Um, no, no radioactive spiders or anything. Uh, no, but no bit
0: by a spider. Nothing
1: nope. Like <laughs> <laughs> but I went vegan back in 2007. And I, I wish I had some amazing light bulb moment and some video that I saw or some interaction that I had. It really just came down to right time, right place and deciding that I wanted to do it. And, you know, I've, I, of course, had interacted with some, you know, being in, in college, I had received vegan outreach type leaflets and stuff like that. And I, I kind of dabbled and experiment a little bit with vegetarianism, nothing ever really clicked. And then the thing that I was doing in my life back then, that was what I thought would be, you know, my, my big thing was I was in a band and we existed for many, many years. We were touring full time and half of the band one day before this big three month long tour out out of nowhere we're like, you want to go vegetarian? And and three of us, three of the six of us were like, sure, let's do that. And we kind of made a plan. You know, we were doing basically like a, a clockwise circle around the outer, like the rim of the US. And we're like, well, we can't do it in Florida because we love their gator tacos and there's this burger place in Texas, but we've never toured in like Northern California. So we don't know what we're missing. So let's just plan (laughs) to go vegetarian after we leave Southern California. And it was this, it was as simple as that. I don't, I honestly don't know why it just felt like there was, it was the right thing to do. And Mm -hmm. so we were in California and a friend brought us to this burrito place and it was a little earlier than scheduled or planned to go vegetarian, but we went to a burrito place The veggie burrito was the cheapest. And right then and there, three of us were like, "Okay, let's just start right now and literally never looked back. It was not a struggle or anything. And a few months later, we ended up touring with a band where all of their members were vegan. And even at that point, I was like, oh, vegans, like I don't want any of that. (laughs) I don't need that. I don't have to check for honey in my bread and all this stuff. They were the kindest, nicest, most amazing people And I had met vegans prior to that, that were kind of more of the militant, you know, that would come from like the punk hardcore scene, that kind of vibe of vegan, never connected with them. But these people were so warm and welcoming, and I just thought I would love to be like them. And they were so kind and receptive to the questions we asked about the, you know, they were eating tofuti and I was, they let me try it. And I was like, this tastes like glue. And, but they never, <laughs> they never were like, well, screw you, Carnist. They, they were just so receptive to the questions. And it wasn't long after that, that I bought a vegan cookbook and just started making things out of it. And I was secretly vegan for a couple of weeks until a friend noticed that I, you know, turned down cheese somewhere and they're like, are you vegan now? And I was like, yeah, I guess I'm vegan now. So, you know, that was Mm -hmm. in like August of 2007 and just kind of never looked back from there. And at -hmm. that point I was buying all the, the books that I could. I wanted to, you know, learn everything I could and, and, you know, cookbooks as well as I think it was the vegan source book that I picked up that really laid out the, the ethical arguments and all the stuff that was happening. I was watching as many documentaries as I could. So I kind of really just became immersed in that world. And I started selling vegan baked goods at shows for like a dollar or two with some vegan literature. And then from there, just kind of got into the world of vegan activism. And you know, it's a it's a whole thing, start a vegan clothing line, all the stuff you mentioned. And that just kind of really put me into the world of, of veganism.
0: Hmm. Wow. Okay. So I have to say that's a very unique origin story though, (laughs) making a pact with your band. I've never heard that one. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, you can't just gloss over the band thing. Okay. So what did you play? What kind of music?
1: (laughs) Well, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a very acquired taste. I will say it was kind of started as like a ska punk kind of band and ended as just a really weird Heavy thing with horns, so it was a type of thing where if you if you liked what we were doing, you were super into it, and otherwise, it was like pretty inaccessible. But I was actually, I was the front man, so I wouldn't call oh. it singing exactly, but it was a lot of jumping around and screaming my head off, and
0: wow, and
1: had a really fun time doing it.
0: Wow, so so, and I I know that we met actually when you were doing the Ten Thousand Lives tour which is a, you were driving a van around the country that had like video uh, screens on the van and you went were going to, I believe, events and college campuses. And you came to the Santa Rosa Junior College it's near me in the Sonoma County area. You have students watch the videos and you talk to them and I came to help that day. And that's how we met. And so I, I know you've been doing this activism for quite a while.
1: Yeah, you know, like I said, I was kind of doing the DIY stuff where I was getting leaflets and and making my own. I actually made a a little zine, which is just, you know, like a photocopied short 10-page thing of how to cook vegan food just in a rice cooker, because that's what my band did on tour. We'd make chili and burritos and all this stuff just in a rice cooker, like at the merch table. So I was selling this cheap zine on how teach people how to cook vegan cheap with like no chopping or, you know, kitchen, even all that stuff. And, and that led into that, that specific band tour experience led into doing the 10 billion lives tour where, you know, they were looking for somebody to drive this vehicle around and talk to people about going vegan. And I was like, well, these are the two things that I love to do. (laughs) And so I spent over the course of two years, I did three or four tours with them And had, I think it was estimated like over 10,000 one-on-one conversations about going vegan. Wow! So yeah, it's been an interesting thing because I feel like I have inhabited so many different sects of this whole movement where I have my little business and that's brought me to VegFest. I'm friends with lots of vegan business owners. But because of doing that activism, that brought me to a lot of people in like the nonprofit world. World and you know uh, that like the animal rights conference, all that kind of world within veganism, and and so I feel like I've been able to wear all these different hats and and be a fly on the wall in all these different parts of the movement.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's great. So Andy, I invited you here today to talk about big bodies, fat bodies, and veganism, and. I'll admit that when I was when I was much younger I did have a prejudice against large bodied people. I thought that they were lazy and maybe just sat around all day, didn't have willpower. And in my 20s I worked at a natural food store and I really had my mind changed because I had two women that I befriended that were co-workers and they were big women but they were really into health and healthy living, and they didn't eat all day, and one rode her bike to work every day, and they talked to me about different bodies and how you can be healthy and large. So I was, I was really lucky to know them, and they really changed my outlook. And I know that you do talk about this issue. That's why I invited you on. You've spoken about this at VegFests and other events. So what's your experience with this? Why do you speak about this issue?
1: Well, I first I want to say that I know we will be talking about specific terms and things like that, but I just want to put out right up front that I think it's totally fine, acceptable to say fat. I know that it is like a it's a really scary term. Like we're all sort of taught to be scared of our bodies changing or having a little fat or a lot of fat on our bodies. But I think a a part of the work that I'm trying to do is to help to just make fat a neutral descriptor. And, you know, sometimes I I bristle when I hear someone describe me like that and I'm like, nope, that's, that's sort of all these mechanisms of society at work right now. So Mm. um, I think it's totally fine to, you know, say we're, we're talking about, you know, fat bodies and veganism or like fat shaming and veganism, things like that. Okay. Um, and then the, the other thing that I do want to acknowledge before getting into all of this is that maybe this doesn't need to be said, but like we all have kind of our own individual experiences with this. And so the experience that I have is not necessarily like the universal fat experience. And I, you know, I have Privilege in so many aspects of my life, like I'm a white male, able-bodied, middle-class upbringing, all of that kind of stuff, and and fatness kind of uh, enhances and exacerbates a lot of marginalizations and oppressions people feel. So, in in many aspects of my life, uh, I am very kind of lucky. And even as a fat person, I kind of I'm on the smaller end of fat, even though I've experienced plenty of prejudice and and all sorts of anti-fat bias, but I want to acknowledge that to say that like people that are fatter than me have a much worse experience than me and someone with a different life experience is likely to have something different. So I'm speaking from just sort of my own personal experience, but as somebody who has become you know has some public presence within veganism it puts me in front of a lot of people especially with the veg fest that i do under normal times pre pandemic times i lived in my van and i traveled from veg fest to veg fest most weekends of the year i'm at a veg fest and putting my myself my my fat vegan body at my merch booth, with all my shirts that say vegan and vegan related phrases in front of the thousands of people, you know, sometimes it's a thousand. sometimes it's like thirty thousand people like at vegan street fair. And so I'm sort of subject to a lot of people's gaze and a lot of people's, you know, conversations. So uh, I, I'm sort of like on display and I'm like being presented to the public in so many aspects of my life, much less so with with podcasting, obviously. but, so so all of that had led to me having a lot of different observations about the way that the vegan movement interacts with fat people with fatness and the ways that the vegan movement in many ways is reflecting a society-wide anti-fat bias and in ways that are very specific to veganism I think really magnifying and making fat shaming and anti-fat bias like much worse in the vegan movement than in society at large in a couple of different ways in different places. So all of that said, I decided that I wanted to increase representation for fat vegans because, you know, the ways that anti-fatness manifests itself within veganism is things like saying that veganism is a magic cure all. It'll be a weight loss plan. It'll fix all of your health issues. And then in, in terms of trying to be a good activist, I kept encountering people saying, you have to have a specific body to be a good vegan activist. You're you're selling this ethical stance with your body. And all of those things collided to wanting to increase representation and eventually to want to sort of actually speak about it. So the very first thing I did with my clothing line, Compassion Co., I just put out a button that said, some vegans are fat, get over it. And It was one of those things that I had the idea for like a year and I had the design made and I just didn't make it because I just saw what happens when fat people step out of line, especially within veganism, because there's sort of the only way it's like, okay, quote unquote, okay to be fat is to be working to not be fat. That's like the good fatty trope and that's sort of the acceptable way. But mm-hmm. for someone to just go, I'm just fine being like this and I'm, I'm happy like this um, is when people get really angry. So I sat on that pin for a long time and eventually I put it out and I posted it and then I just like ran away from my computer. <laughs> and <laughs> and and thankfully, I came back to certainly some some very mean and abusive comments, but overwhelmingly a lot of people that said Thank you for saying something. I feel so alone in this. I feel like I can't tell people I'm vegan and that I'm a bad vegan and all of those mm. things that I personally have experienced myself and have heard many other people say. Mm. And so that led me to doing a couple other designs. Mostly they say like fat happy vegan and and things like that were that are designed to encourage representation of fat vegans because I feel like if we're a movement that is trying to change the world, but our representatives are only seen as being one specific body type that we're really limiting our potential, as well as just causing harm to people by enhancing the anti-fat bias in society that, that causes lots of harm. And we can talk about what that harm looks like uh, later on, I suppose, but... So that's that's been my experience. Doing that has led me to speaking about these things at VegFest and being on a couple of panels. and. Doing some podcast episodes about it. And and that has been my general experience with with this.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, you saying that you do a lot of tabling. And so you're kind of putting yourself out there. And I had an experience actually with a volunteer and tabling that was just shocking to me. And There was a woman that was helping me at a table. She had been vegan a while for years, but was just kind of getting into activism. And uh, she was a very, she was a big woman. She was a fat woman. You know, I was training her kind of, and I, I left her alone at the table with someone else for a while. And when I came back, I could tell, I could feel her energy had shifted. And she was, she asked if she could leave early. And she confided in me a few days later when I checked in with her, that someone had really harassed her at the table. And that someone had said to her, well, you there's no way you can be vegan. You're too fat. And I just, I, I was shocked, you know, because I didn't know these things really existed. I'm, I, I don't have that experience. And, you know, she said, I don't ever want a table again. I don't really want to do in-person anything anymore. I'll help you behind the scenes. But, you know, I don't want to ever do that again. And I thought, wow, what a loss. So it's just very... Sad. So let's talk about what this is. Let's really define what's going on here. Body shaming, fat justice. There's a lot of terms too that we can talk about. I've seen so many terms and I wrote down some of them here. You know, maybe you could tell us which ones that you think are good, which ones maybe are, if there's any that are problematic. So there's body positive, fat positive, fat acceptance, fat liberation, fat justice, body diversity, size diversity, fat phobia. So what are acceptable terms to use for large bodies? And I mean, I, I guess I just threw a lot at you, but but what's, you know, <laughs> I, I guess defining what we're talking about here?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of terms, some that you just listed, a few that I'll, I'll throw in that you didn't list. And I just... I want to say I'm not here to like police people's language, and I don't think any of the terms that you threw out are like bad or anything, but I also think that they all have different implications, different meanings. Mm. And a lot of the time, all of the stuff that you just said just gets sort of shrunk down into this umbrella term of body positivity. And to the point where I feel like it kind of almost like waters things down. So I think I, I relish the opportunity to discuss the, some of the distinctions between them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, I mean, as far as just like fat shaming, I think a lot of people probably have a pretty good idea of what that might be. But on on my podcast, feared Vegans, we did a whole episode on asking if guilt and shame are effective tactics for uh, changing people's minds about things. And so that sent me on this whole research tunnel about guilt and shame. But essentially, shame is about making someone feel bad about who they are as a person, whereas guilt is more about someone feeling bad about a specific act that they have done. So when you're you're fat shaming someone, you're making them feel bad about like who they are as an individual and We can get into this but pretty much all the evidence says that that's actually not a good not a good motivator for change whether it's social justice or trying to get someone to exercise or whatever it is and obviously fat shaming is a more specific kind of version of body shaming and it's it's much more pointed about the size of somebody's body and so to to come back to that idea of body positivity as sort of an umbrella term, like body positivity is something that really started as a movement in like the late 60s. And it came out of the fats rights movement. And so it's something that was designed to help those who are the most marginalized and the most affected by body shaming and fat shaming, which is like the fattest among us. And like over the years, it's kind of become a term that like I said, is watered down. I would say it's been really co-opted by the wellness industry and the wellness industry is just the new terminology for the weight loss industry. There's been kind of a shift over the last 10 years or so, like you're even seeing weight watchers has rebranded as WW now because weight loss, there's sort of like something in the air. That's like, "Mm, maybe it's not quite right, but if we rebrand it to talk about wellness then all of a sudden it's okay to talk about people's body sizes and things like that. So as a reaction to body positivity kind of getting watered down, that's where terms like fat liberation, fat justice, et cetera, come out of. And there's also terms like body neutrality, because the idea that you have to be positive about your body to me, that's about sort of individualizing. That's sort of about stripping all of the stuff that we're talking about from any sort of society-wide systemic uh, bias or behaviors that are that are happening right now. And so it's kind of like, you just have to feel good about yourself. If you feel good about yourself, then all these problems go away. And obviously, I think that we should feel good about ourselves. I think that that's a worthy pursuit. But I also think that Like body neutrality is kind of saying, it's okay if you don't feel good about your body. And that doesn't mean that you don't deserve respect or justice or to be accommodated by society or to have a place within the vegan movement, for instance. So I think I really like that term because I think it makes it so it's like, it's not so much about how you feel about yourself. Some people will never feel good about their bodies. Uh, Some people will never be able-bodied. And some people are fine with that. And some people feel down about that. And I think it's okay to normalize feeling okay about that. I don't use that term that much, but I'm more about the term like fat liberation because fat acceptance to me is kind of saying, I just want people to have like passive acceptance of me. And I want people to understand that I, as well as all fat people are like, vital and worthy parts of our society. They're vital and worthy parts of our social justice movements of veganism and that their presence shouldn't be, our presence shouldn't be tolerated and accepted. It should be encouraged. It should be actively sought out because like I was saying, our movements need to represent the spectrum of human existence. So to me, that's why I like fat, like positivity or fat liberation, and as opposed to acceptance or neutrality. Um, and then some other th- terms that I'll, I'll throw in here that might come up. There's the term plus size that a lot of people are familiar with. And so people often kind of go, well, what's if you're not plus size, then you're normal or something like that. But I prefer the term straight size, because that in that, like, lets people know that you are still falling into a category, even if you feel like your body size is the default. I've also said the term like anti-fat bias a lot. And to me, that feels different than body shaming. I think people think of body shaming as like a specific act that one bad person does to another person. And obviously I don't think that that is good, but I think that that really individualizes the problem and just you know, not to say that these movements are the same, but just like as an example, like there can be an individual racist person saying racist things, but we also understand that like white supremacy is a systemic issue as well, and that it's not just about changing the hearts and minds of a, of a handful of people that are exhibiting the most egregious of behaviors in that that there is systemic change needs to happen as well. So, that's why I use the terms like anti-fat bias or maybe even fat phobia, as opposed to just like body shaming or fat shaming. So yeah, I, I think that's most of the terms that I mention in this kind of talk.
0: Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. And and digging a little deeper, perhaps you know, I've heard you and others that talk about this say that fat oppression is another system of oppression, just like any other. Can you expand on this and how it relates in the vegan community and perhaps how we use body image in the vegan community?
1: So this is a question that I have struggled a lot with figuring out a way to have like a really good kind of succinct soundbite about this. It's something that I am still working out in my mind, but I think that it's worth saying that, you know, all, all systems of oppression don't exist in a vacuum. You know, everything is not like its own little individual thing. And this oppression sits over here and this one sits over here and this one, oh, we can tackle that one. And then we move on to this one. So I think that like anti-fatness does not exist in a bubble. And I think it's totally fine. It's totally acceptable. I think it's necessary that we all really focus on you know, become experts in one specific thing while also educating ourselves about all other systems of oppression. So I think it's like, it's intertwined with veganism because we are fighting for the liberation of bodies, right? We're fighting, we are fighting for the body, bodily autonomy of non-human animals. And I think like all of these things are intertwined and we can't separate one from the other. And like the, There's a fantastic book that I'd recommend, Fearing a Black Body, which is about sort of the racist roots of anti-fat bias and fat oppression and body shaming and all of that stuff. And like, when you dig into these things, you're like, oh, wow, all the roots of these things are very similar. And so I think that it's important to recognize that they're all kind of intertwined together and that they also enhance and exacerbate each other. Enhance is like almost like a positive word, but it like makes oppressions worse if you are also fat while experiencing some other kind of marginalizations.
0: Yeah. And what was the book called?
1: It's called Fearing the Black Body.
0: Mm. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. So switching gears just a little bit, I think that there is a sentiment in the vegan activist community, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, that's kind of like, well, yeah, okay, you can have body acceptance and body positivity. That's fine. That's good for you. But don't bring it into veganism. We tend to want people to think that they're going to lose weight. There's a lot of health-based and health-focused, plant-based activism That is kind of the gateway, you know, into veganism as they see it. And they promise all these miracle health benefits, weight loss being one of them. I I think that they want to hide fat vegans because it doesn't fit into that narrative. What do you say about this?
1: Well, you, you said a lot of things there that I that I would like to touch on and kind of tap into. I agree that it feels like fat vegans are often hidden. And I think you need to look no further than the leaflets and literature that so many organizations put out. Even, even ones that I think have made posts about fat acceptance and vegans comes in all shapes and sizes. You look at the leaflets they're handing out to try to appeal to non-vegans. And it's pretty exclusively you know, thin or straight size, kind of muscular type of people. And and there's just, like you said, there's this promise of whether it's explicitly stated or it's kind of just implied that if you go vegan, you will look like this, you will have this body. And I, and I don't want this conversation to be misconstrued as saying that I don't think that we should ever talk about health. People want to know that they're not going to die if they go on a vegan diet. They want to know that they can thrive. They want to know that they can continue to perform at elite levels in their sports. And I think all those things are important and a part of our activism. Yeah. But when we over promise things be, that, that we can't deliver on, because if you, if you say like, what's a vegan diet, that's like saying, what is a meat eaters diet, right? There's so many different variations of that. And there's so many different ways to eat as a vegan. And there are people who adopt the, you know, the whole foods plant-based diet. And from what we've seen, that can definitely offer some health benefits, um, but not everybody is going to be so strictly focused on that. And a lot of people don't want to go vegan and transform into the super bodybuilder type person. They just want to continue to live their lives without harming animals. So if we overpromise things, that leads to this whole rash of videos that I've certainly seen You know, hundreds of them at this point of the person saying, I'm a failed vegan, I went vegan and it didn't work for me. Mm. And, you know, what does that phrase mean? It didn't work for me. You know, veganism always works because it's always reducing your impact on animals. It's always, it's always working in that regard. But if we're saying you're going to lose all this weight or you're going to, you're going to reverse your cancer and like all of these promises that I've seen people make, Um, I think it's a huge detriment, one, to a lot of people because we're lying to them and two, because we're losing the focus on the animals. So I I think all of that is such a detriment to this movement because, sure, a lot of people do enter into this because they're like, I want to eat a little bit healthier. Oh, let me try this veganism thing. And I think there is a lot of power in that. It does kind of bring down the barriers for a lot of people to then be open to the ethical messaging of it. So I I don't want to discount that. But I think that we just do such a disservice if we're not saying to people, you can do whatever you want on this diet. You can maintain whatever body you want on this. I mean, we say diet, but like in the, within these ethical beliefs, you can eat in any specific way. There's even like vegan keto books and stuff out there right now. Like you, mm-hmm. there's anything that you want to do, you can do as a vegan. And if we're not presenting that, if we're only like, this is a wonderful miracle health cure. I feel like we're just doing such a disservice to the animals.
0: It's true, veganism is a justice movement for animals. It's not a health movement, that would be more plant-based. You know, I I get these emails from uh, talks that are happening and it's lose weight, feel great, be your best self and all of that and go vegan. And if we don't fulfill those promises in some certain amount of time and that people don't get those results, then it's possible they are just going to say, forget it. You know, like you said, there's all these people that say, oh, well, it didn't work for me. If that's the main message. And, and I, I, I agree with you. It can bring people in. That's, that's fine. But we've got to keep the focus on the animals.
1: Yeah. And obviously, there's a diversity of opinions on like how much we should focus on health. I just, in my mind, I feel like it's a tool in the toolbox. It's a way to answer someone's question about if I decide to adopt this ethical framework, am I going to get enough protein? Am I going to get enough B12 and all of those things? Um, I don't think that it should be the specific selling point. And it, it's fine if there's like a panel on that at a veg fest. I go to so many veg fests where literally five out of six of the speakers are people over promising the benefits of a plant-based diet and telling people to adopt these highly restrictive diets that are free of all all sorts of things that would be considered to be a part of an average plant-based diet which i think is another thing that leads to a lot of people abandoning it because they think to be vegan they have to get rid of salt and oil and sugar and if if that's your thing and it works for you that's great but people that think that that's like an inherent intrinsic part of this. It's a shame that there's kind of this overlap between the fact, you know, the fact that vegans don't eat animals and people that want to promise all these health benefits also typically are not eating animals. And there's kind of this overlap, but really they're almost two bizarrely different worlds at the same time. And, and I actually, I do want to say, cause you, you mentioned how a lot of people are saying that's fine if you want to have this body acceptance, whatever movement, but don't bring veganism into it. My response to that, like I mentioned, is that all these things are intertwined, but I I don't just want a vegan world. I am not fighting for a world where animals are free, but we can still be horrible to human beings and where human beings are still horribly oppressed. And I don't know why anybody would want that personally. So I get that we might feel like we need to put our time and effort into certain things. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But like, let's ask ourselves, what are we actually fighting for? I, I rarely use the phrase vegan world anymore. I am fighting for a just world. I'm fighting for an equitable world. That means a world in which we don't treat fat people horribly and a world in which fat people are not subject to all the systemic biases that they currently are. And I don't think that We need to be overwhelmed by all of this because trying to be fully involved in every social justice movement is, in my opinion, a recipe for burnout. Yeah. But I think that it only enhances our activism when we work to be aware of other social justice issues. If you just want to focus on veganism, that's fine. But, like, you know, put people into your Instagram feed or whatever that are educating you on racism, sexism, transphobia, fat phobia, all of these things. And just like make that a part of your feed. It doesn't mean you have to go to every single march and, you know, get super involved in everything, but learning how you can conduct your activism in a way that isn't bolstering up other systems of oppression or stepping on the necks of other social justice movements at the same time, I promise it can be done. I think that that just enhances our movement. And I also think that We should be striving to be allies to other social justice movements, Uh, one, because it strengthens our movement, and two, just because I think it's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about something that I think is really interesting that's been happening, and that is... We're seeing now larger bodies in mainstream commercials on TV, in magazines, and just in the last like three to five years, I'll be watching TV and, you know, suddenly there is a big girl in her undies and you're like whoa i mean to me it's it it's it's shocking but in a good way like i'm like yeah right on you know that's awesome uh i'm so glad to see that and to see people that are more diverse and more differing bodies I don't see large men very much, though it's only women. And I'm you know, it's just kind of interesting to note. I'm not really sure why that is. But I think this shift is really fascinating in mainstream culture. What do you think about this that this shift that's happening?
1: Well, I think that increased representation for any marginalized group is always a good thing. And it, it is interesting that you mention that you're seeing like kind of a lack of, of like sort of like fat male representation. And I feel like, you know, fat men have always been more represented, but we just sort of have a different way of being represented. You think about so many classic sitcom tropes, which is usually kind of like the fat slovenly, husband with like the smoking hot wife, is just something that you see repeated over and over again. And so, you know, fat bodies and and often fat men in media are depicted as sexless and without desire or just like perpetually struggling with weight and all of those things. So to start to see representation of people that just happen to be fat, uh, I think is great. And also to see representations of people that are just like, fine, like, happy, happy with their bodies and all of those things. I think all of that is great. I think we probably have a a super long way to go. Yeah. But I also don't want us to get distracted with cosmetic diversity. And like, I also want to make sure that we are keeping our sort of our eye on the prize, right? Because, oh, you might have films with uh, increased representation of women, but has the pay gap The gender pay gap has that been addressed, right? You have all of these, you know, focus on racial justice over the last year. And it's cool that people are painting Black Lives Matter in the street, but are they actually addressing the material needs of Black Americans right now? Mm -hmm. And so, the same thing, I think, again, not to equate all of these movements, but you, you start to see sort of a similar pattern. It's cool that there's more fat people being represented in media and I guess even in in advertising, although I'm a little more cynical about, about that. But I'm also like, that's that's great. But does that mean that we're going to reduce the fact that like fat people can be fired for being fat in 49 of the 50 US states right now? Does it address the fact that there's actually a pay gap for fat people? Fat people are likely to be paid less. Fat people are likely to get worse medical care. And there's all these studies about sort of anti-fat bias within medical providers and stories about people that went to the doctor for something really serious. And the doctor said, well, you need to lose weight. That'll solve your problem. And then later you find out they actually had cancer or some tumor or something like that. And there's like all, all of these things, those are just like a few small examples of the ways that like anti-fat bias is built into like the fabric of our society. So I hope that increased representation can help to normalize seeing, you know, fat people and hopefully help those things, but it's only one piece of the puzzle.
0: Wow. Well, that, some of that stuff was really shocking. I mean, I knew some of it, but wow. I too hope that that it helps and it is helping. And at least seeing people of different sizes makes it more normalized in a way. And I don't know, hopefully, hopefully it translates into helping with all those issues. So I I really want people to understand and realize that not all fat people are unhealthy. And I think that there's a real uh, misconception that just because you're above your BMI or whatever, that you're unhealthy. And that's not the case. Uh, I've learned that. And 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 skinny people, of course, can be unhealthy. So it goes both ways. I, I, I would love you to address this and that we don't necessarily have to be super thin to be healthy.
1: Sure. So... The first thing that I want to say is that BMI is something that gets brought up in a lot of these conversations. And I think a lot of us.
0: And, and what is BMI? I should have. It's body mass index,
1: body mass index. Yeah. And so it's essentially it's it boils down to like a height to weight ratio. And that gives you a number which puts you in a category.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, You know, they're like obese, super obese, et cetera. Um, I don't use the term obese. And I think that that sort of really pathologizes body size. And I think that, that that's,
0: that's interesting. So you're okay with fat, but not obese. Explain that because I would think obese is a little like lighter or softer.
1: So I think that like fat to me is just sort of like a neutral descriptor where obese is like this medical term that has been applied or maybe a scientific term that's been like applied to different body sizes. And then like the end result of that is this real big stigmatization of certain body sizes. And like the the history of BMI, it was not initially meant to be uh, an indicator of a specific one individual's health. And it was created using only like white European men's bodies. So it considered to be widely like racist and sexist because it doesn't account for a wide diversity of body types. Mm. Just like this is something I learned from Carol Adams that crash test dummies, like crash tests are only done with dummies that were at least at a certain point in our history, only with like bodies designed to be like male bodies. They, right. The placement of your seatbelt wasn't designed for like breasts, for instance. Mm. And, and so when you take like a bunch of like white men and then use their specific measurements to determine what the ideal body size is, There's a lot of problems with that. I think that it's a it's a a measurement tool that's like super outdated Mm. at this point. And as far as everything else that you said, certainly you cannot tell the health of somebody by looking at them. That is absolutely true. But for me, the most important thing is that regardless of somebody's level of health, regardless of their fitness or chronic diseases, all of that stuff, I think that. Even if somebody is unhealthy, they're deserving of love, respect, a place in the movement, and not to be subject to the systemic issues that come along with anti-fat bias. So I'm not interested in proving that I can be healthy as a fat person because I don't think that that should be, I want, I want to use the term moral baseline, but like, I, you know, I don't think that that should be like the moral measuring stick by which we determine Someone is welcome in our society and deserving of of respect and justice and all of these things. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that do great work around kind of disproving those things. To me, it's kind of it's a, a distraction from the overall point of the fact that we all deserve love and respect and and care and justice in the society.
0: Wow, yeah, <laughs> really well put and beautifully said. And I hadn't hadn't thought about it that way. And you are absolutely. Right. So what advice do you have for people out there that want to help? And I mean, I guess we can call them allies. Maybe let me know if you think that word applies, but for people who want to stand up for, for fat vegans and want to help.
1: Yeah. I I don't personally have a, any, problem with the term allies. I know a lot of people prefer accomplices or I I think the intent I do not like
0: accomplices. I've been hearing that (laughs) and it sounds like an accomplice to a crime. I I just I don't know. We gotta find a better word than that.
1: I uh, I mean (laughs) I don't know. I I don't. I you know. For me, I'm more interested in like what what do people think the intent of the word is. But as as long as people don't say I'm an ally and that's a badge I wear and I have nothing else to do, you know. As long as people understand that allyship is sort of a continual process of 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 learning and unlearning and standing up and you know doing the right thing. It's not just saying I believe that this is a good thing and then that's all you have to do. But for people that really want to. Uh, yeah become better allies like i like i mentioned diversifying your feed is such an important thing to do within the vegan world um, chelsea lincoln who is can be found at fat vegan voice on instagram and uh, i think fatveganvoice.com is seriously like the best person um, just such a wealth of knowledge has been doing this work for such a long time and because of The the fraught nature of the the health promises and a lot of this vegan movement being, I want to say like infiltrated, but like infiltrated by sort of people selling health promises. There's definitely like a really strong tension between those that are working for body liberation and like vegans. And so it's nice to find. And I think that's understandable, even though it's frustrating for me wanting to exist in both places but like chelsea is such a great person to follow if you're looking for somebody that's not going to compromise on like the animal ethics of it and as far as books i already mentioned fearing the black body which is by sabrina strings also an invaluable resource that i think literally every human should read is called what we don't talk about when we talk about fat which is by aubrey gordon and Aubrey goes by your fat friend, which is YR fat friend on Instagram and dot com. And for the longest time was an anonymous writer until this book came out. And Aubrey also has a podcast called maintenance phase, which deconstructs and, and sort of ruins a lot of you know everything from like Weight Watchers to Fen Fen to the presidential fitness test kind of breaks down the histories of all of those. Those are resources that are great. If you're more interested in learning about the systemic things, like if you heard me say fat people can legally be fired for being fat and you're like, what? Tell me more. Definitely go read what we don't talk about when we talk about fat, because it, it, it's just a mind blowing read if you're not familiar with this stuff. And even if you are, it just puts it together in such a nice package. Mm. I I guess the last thing I'll add is that like you know learn diversify your feed that'll help you identify these things when they are happening and then we need allies we need straight-size folks that are not affected by this to also speak up when they see it so if you see a post by an organization or a friend it doesn't mean you have to cancel everybody or anything like that but it does it does mean that it's good to lend a supportive comment in the comment section or send a message to the organization to discuss like why you think what they're doing is detrimental. And I think that that is lending that sort of public support. Once you start to educate yourself a little bit more on these things um, is a really important thing to do as well.
0: Yeah, great. And I'll add all that you mentioned in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, be sure to go to the show notes so you can link to all of those resources. Well, Andy, I ask all of my guests this, so I'm going to ask you as well. What gives you hope for the future
1: Oh, hope! That's such a tough one. I am known for being the eternal pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think just by the fact that I'm here talking to you right now, and the fact that I have dedicated so much of my life over the last however many years to trying to create change, it says to me that I must have a kernel of hope somewhere within <laughs> me. Like hope is it's uh, it's absolutely necessary to like, to believe that we can change the world. So I think I have hope just as a necessary function of doing activism, which (laughs) is that I have to have it in order to believe that the world can be changed. And I I, honestly, I feel like we have to overcome an extraordinary amount of pessimism to believe that. And I think that those of us who are actually actively working to, to change things, we must all have hope. So I don't have any specific things or acts or laws or any of that kind of stuff, but just, I just, I have it because I have to have it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hope is my middle name, literally. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I agree. I think that my mom named me that because she knew I was going to need it to be an activist. You're right. We, we have to, we have to have hope. We know that this isn't going to happen in our lifetime, even it's generational work. So we have to have hope for a better future Uh, or we wouldn't do what we do, right? Absolutely. Well, Andy, it's been a really, really enlightening conversation. Uh, I really hope that people dig into this more and learn more. And I really appreciate you being on and being honest and open and talking to us about this. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I've interviewed numerous guests now for the podcast, and, and a lot of the times I'm already basically familiar with the information, but with some, I learned so much. And I not only learned something, but I feel like my perspective shifts. And this was one of those interviews. I feel like I now have a much deeper understanding of this issue and of anti-fat biases that, that even I still had. So I want to thank Andy for his insights. It was really informative. If you found this episode important, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. Add us to your listening library and maybe give us a five-star rating or write a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That will really help us to grow and reach even more ears with this kind of critical and meaningful programming. And Always have hope for a better day for non-human animals and for humans, human animals of all shapes and sizes, and live vegan.